Hi, this is Pastor Daniel Bracken. You're listening to Kings Alaska podcast. I hope the word encourages you and you get a touch from God that brings transformation and equips you to experience life with people, power, and purpose. Thank you for joining us. Enjoy the word. Great to be with you tonight. There's a lot of things I want to share. And there's, there's things that are a little touchy for my heart. That I want to share, but tonight, if with your permission, again, I'd like to use personal experience to illustrate the things that I want to bring to light. Jesus told parables. I'm a parabolist. I tell a lot of parables, stories that have underlying meaning, that have uh, that have affected my life. That I think the stories, we're as Americans, we love stories. Thirty minutes on TV, or an hour, or two-hour movie, or whatever. If, if there's a storyline, we love that story, if it's a good story. And uh, uh, so there, there's several things I want to start with and some I want to end with. Uh, one of the things that I, I just keeps coming to my mind is healing the broken that we talked about this morning. I'm going to pursue a little bit more of that. I want to tell you an event that happened uh, several years ago at, at our Colorado ranch. A young warrior came through, well, 6,000 warriors came through, but this one in particular, uh, he told the story of how he was in charge of, a, of an artillery battery. And he would call in, they would call him with a, a fixed position, and then he would dial it in, they called it, and then they would shoot these big 155 millimeter, whatever, I don't know, I don't know what I'm talking about because I was in the Navy. <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about because I was in the Navy. Hmm, that really came out intelligent. But this is an army guy telling me an army story. And, and he said, while his job was relatively easy because he was out of the line of fire this day, he was in line of fire and bullets were pinging off the equipment. A sniper was, was shooting at him and he could not, I couldn't isolate or find where that guy was. And he was glassing, trying to see. And the only thing he could see was way out over a mile away or about a mile away, it was the peak of a house that he could just barely see over the horizon of a sand dune. And that's the only place he could imagine the fire was coming from. And it was in the right direction. And so he called in and got firing permission, and he dialed in that house. And one shell reduced it to toothpicks. And they jumped in their helicopter, and they flew out over to it. They got there, and there were six dead adults and not a weapon to be found. And it ripped him up. Now, it doesn't, that doesn't mean someone may have gotten away and taken the weapon with them. So there's, there's a lot of possibilities there, but the fact was there were six dead and no evidence of a sniper, but it gets really, really worse. He looked over and he heard a whimper, and a little four-year-old girl was laying on the floor with her leg blown off, and she was still alive. He grabbed his belt, pulled it off, tourniqueted that little girl's what was left of her leg to stop the bleeding, put her in the helicopter and flew her to Mosul. And there was an Air Force hospital there and they got her in the hospital. They saved the little girl's life. Now, in this story, the guy's telling me the story. He's an alcoholic and he's young. He's only 25 years old and he's turned to alcohol trying to numb his brain from this memory. But he's pouring out his guts to me, just telling me the whole story. And he's so broken. And I'm, 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 I felt so bad because I couldn't, 
I couldn't take that load off of him. I couldn't extract that pain from his memory. And he goes on. He says, uh, I, I got her in the hospital, and he said, when we flew away, he said, I didn't know if she was going to live or die. But he said, about six weeks later, I went back because I wanted to see how she was doing. And he got back, and he went to the hospital there, and they said, she's gone. And he lost it. And they said, what's wrong with you? He said, well, we, I brought her here for you to save her life. They said, well, we did. He said, well, you said she's gone. No, she's gone to an orphanage. She lived. And he got the location and went to the orphanage. Now, get this mental picture. Here's a little girl, about four and a half, five years old now, with one leg. She goes hopping over on that one leg. When he walks in, grabs him by his leg and looks up with a beautiful little smile and saying in, in Farsi how much she loved him for saving her life. She did not know he's the one that called in the artillery fire that blew her leg off. In life, there are three people, three persons that have to be forgiven. Say three persons. Forgive those that have sinned against you. Forgive God for not doing what you asked him to do and he didn't do it the way you thought he should. And forgiving yourself. And that last one's really, really difficult. Because you can substitute forgiving God with learning to trust God. Because if you can trust him, you've obviously forgiven him. And how do you forgive a God that doesn't know what sin is and he's, he's, God's never sinned? But forgiving yourself. I mean, we, we've learned already that if we don't forgive others, we're not forgiven. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. So you're quite aware of the fact that if you're going to hold a grudge against somebody, that grudge is being held against you. And don't go telling me how much you love God when you hate your brother because the Bible says you're a liar. Do you still love me? <laughs> Oof, brother Dave. Who cut the mic off? <laughs> How do you forgive yourself? When you can lie to yourself better than anybody. No one can lie to me like me. No one can deceive me like me. Nobody can convince me like me. I can, I can fast for five days and lose 10 pounds and reward myself with a gallon of ice cream. <laughs> oh, I think I'm connecting tonight. That boy needed somebody to reach deep into his brokenness, into that dry desert place where he had lost his hope, lost in his own grief at his own, what he thought was his own mistake, serving his country, doing, and if you really want to get down to the legalism of it, he only fired with permission from his superiors, so he was really hands-free, not guilty. But here's the facts. We do things that leave marks on us that hurt so deeply. To forgive ourselves, we have to figure out a means to justify ourselves. Say just. just. 
There's a thing called just war. Do you know what that means? Just war, that means war that is justifiable. If you are in, let's say you're in law enforcement, and I think you were, sir. Uh, am I looking at the wrong man here? I can't see with the light. You were in law enforcement, right? That's what I thought you told me earlier. And you will relate to this. If I was viewing an officer of the law who was viewing a man assaulting a woman and the officer of the law had a weapon and could stop the assault against that innocent woman and he did not do it, according to the Old Testament, he would be guilty of that assault. He did not intervene. He was not proactive. He didn't step in to make the difference. And I want to say if you're in law enforcement, don't, don't go to bed feeling guilty at night because you took the stand that would save a life that may have taken a life. The Bible says thou shalt not kill. It's not talking about defending those that are defenseless. It's talking about murder. And there's two forms of murder in my book. Murder of proactive, committing the murder, and the murder of not acting and let somebody else do the murder when you could have stopped it. <laughs> All that to come down to this one statement. Forgiving ourselves is one of the hardest things we'll ever do in our lifetime. But until we can forgive ourselves, we can't move forward. And all of us have things in our lives we wish we could have, should have, or did not do that we should have done that we wish we could change. You cannot change the past, but you can learn from the past and change what would have been a disastrous future, but we learned from our history. Don't do that. <laughs> it's like I walk up to some guy and say, don't stick your tongue in a light socket. And he says, why not? And I say, stupid. <laughs> I would have learned and I would hope that I could give you something to save you from the pain that I have been through because of my mistakes. That's, that's how we teach our children. That's how we change the life to make it better in a nation, in a country, is because we don't want to repeat that negative history, but we do want to repeat the positive. I'm really taking a lot of time to set this up. But I want to talk to you tonight about that desert place in the wilderness where we've walked in that darkness and we were like a wandering spirit in a desert place with no water. And in the book of Psalm, the 84th Psalm, there is a scripture that is one of the cornerstones of my entire life. And when I say entire life, I should say from the injury to this date. Something that God gave me that would transform me to the point that I was able to take that transformational understanding from the scriptures and pass that on to a generation of people and still have its impact in my life today, today this very day. And it reads like this in the 84th Psalm, if you care to look it up. Psalm 84. Go ahead and I'll give you a second, if, if you don't mind. Look it up. Psalm 84, verse 5, 6, and 7. And the psalmist is writing about a place called Baca, B-A-C-A, or B-A-C-C-A, or Baca, B-A-K-K-A, or B-A-K-K-A-H. All these different spellings are of one place. And it goes like this. Blessed is the man whose strength is in thee, in whose heart are the ways of them. The ways of them. Now, let that 
sit there for just a second. Who passing through the valley of Baca makes it a place of springs. The rain also filleth the pools. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them appeareth before God in Zion. I got to thinking about that years ago. Some asked me, even this very week, when did you start your ministry? Well, actually, I started preaching when I was 17 years old. I held my first revival at 17 years old. And I think more people backslid that week than came to know Jesus. I was so confused. But I got my feet wet. I, 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 was, I was swimming in shallow water, I'll put it that way. You don't dive into shallow water. You get hurt. You wade into it. But the deeper you go, the more you learn. Deep calleth unto deep, the scriptures say. And whenever I went to Vietnam, I was extracted from Bible college. I was drafted. I was literally, now I don't talk, I'm not talking about the, ro the lottery. This was Uncle Sam wants you. And if you passed your physical, you were drafted. And the physical was very simple. Does your trigger finger work? Yes, sir. You passed your physical. <laughs> they were desperate for warm bodies. And my trigger finger worked. I passed my physical after I'd studied all night for the blood test. <laughs> Y'all look at, I got an O plus on that. Come on now, that's funny. I don't care who you are. And so I now becoming a military man out of a family that's never had anyone serve in their entire history. My family, no one in my family ever served, and they didn't run from it. They just came at times of peace. Now my dad was in World, during World War II, worked for General Dynamics, and he built the overhead monorail of the mile-long building that built everything from Convair bombers to the F-22s today. He installed that. Well, during World War II, that was being installed, and they would not let my dad serve because the Air Force said he's more critical for national defense than if he was on the front line with a machine gun. So they wouldn't let him serve. I worked for the same company in the same building in the same department, transportation department, and the war in Vietnam, and they were drafting me, and they said, Bye-bye. <laughs> That's how important I was. They did not care if I served or didn't serve in Vietnam. They just let me go. I was not of critical value to my country working at General Dynamics, the old convert. Bye-bye. No one missed me. No one cared. But my little wife, she knew what I was up against. I had three exemptions from the draft. One, I was a college student. I was, in, I was in university. Number two, I was a Bible college trainee for ministry, which is an exemption. All ministers were exempted. Number three, I was married. I married my junior high school sweetheart. She was 13 when I asked her to marry me. I was 16 that day, and she slapped me. <laughs> and you thought I was injured in a war in Vietnam. <laughs> <laughs> she, she, and she said, I'm only 13. I said, but you have the body of a 14-year-old. That was not the right thing to say. A godly little 13-year-old conservative did not like me talking about her body. And uh, so I got slapped again. And it was a rocky start, but you know what? 
We were both virgins when we married. You can clap, I'll wait. Oh, thank you, thank you. I, I tell that story in public schools and girls give me standing ovations and boys salute in a peculiar way. And I ended up in the middle of a war. I didn't start when I couldn't stop, but almost ended my life. All that to get to this point. I was in a difficult place and there was no water to drink because on the second week in Vietnam, the body count was so high of floaters, they called them, dead in the water. And I did not know how many I had killed that day. And a little preacher's kid. All the innocence I had known all my life. I never even had a black eye, folks. I never got in a fight. I had a really mean cousin. He did my fighting for me. <laughs> Anybody mess with me? He just co-cockled. I'm not kidding you. He was mean. But I never got in a fight. I was, I was a peaceful kid. I'd never even seen a war movie. My dad wouldn't buy a TV. He called it the thief of family time. He wouldn't buy, he wouldn't even buy a television. So I, I'd never grown up in violence. My dad, my mom was invalid. And he, he, I never saw my dad even raise his voice, much less his fist against my mom. All I ever knew was peace and suffering through her. I saw the devastation of disease and that took her mind, but I never knew violence. And I was in a desert place spiritually. After that body count, the last time I shed a tear for 12 months was on that body count. Eight months later, I'm hit in, in the war, so devastating, my second hit. I took the first hit on the 23rd of July. I've got pictures of the Purple Heart citation for the 23rd of July. Three days later, 26th of July, I'm back on the river for the first time because nobody was there to take my place. And I'm patched up on the river. I'm, I'm wounded fighting on the third day after my injury. And we went back to where I took that first injury and they got me the second time. And the second time they hit me, took me out of the war completely and left me devastated the rest of my life. No pity. I don't need it. I meet people uglier me all the time, never were hurt. I just say, they say, what happened to your face? I say, what happened to your mother? Oh, dude, you know you're ugly when you're born. They slap your mom. That was a joke. I hope you didn't take it. Never mind. I'm feeling pretty good about life tonight. <laughs> Four months in the hospital. I was there a year and two months. Four months into my year and two months. The fourth month, I'm in the intensive care unit still. 13 of us are in that room. We're all there to die, and I'm the only one that lived. Everyone died. We were called the Baker's Dozen. There were 13 of us, and every one of them died but me. I had gone into a deep, dark, miserable state of mind. I could not weep. I, didn't, I had no sense of compassion, and yet I had never lost my faith in Christ. I, I was holding on to that thread of hope, but it had taken away from me the capacity for compassion, to weep, to cry, to care. And now you add up eight months in the war from the second week, first body count, eight months later I'm injured, four months in the hospital, that's 12 months, one year to the month. I'm sitting for the first time, 
I'm sitting up in a chair. Now, don't take offense the way I say this, but your buttocks, if you've not sat in a chair for a year or for four months, I'm telling you, you cannot sit in a chair without pain. It hurts because you're, you, you can't find a place you've not sat on that part of your body. Am I making any sense? And I was in pain. I'm shocked by the fact that I'm sitting up and every joint in my body was miserable. My skin was still being grafted. I'm in a, I'm in a hellish place. And I'm staring straight ahead when a woman walked in. And I, my, this 13 of us were up near the front by the nurse's station because of our death rate was so high. And like I said, they put us there to die so we wouldn't discourage patients on the main ward. So we discouraged each other to death. And I must have been really bad because I'm the one that lived. <laughs> and this woman walks up. She stops right in front of me. She was a black lady. And she raised her hand, and I noticed it was pink. The black pigment of her skin was burned in a second-degree burn. That pigment would, would come back. Her hand would turn to its normal color again. But this was a recent fire, did not require grafting. But she raised her little pink hand up, and when she spoke, I knew she was from the South. She said, hi there. I didn't say a word. It wasn't prejudice. I hated everybody equally. I looked at her and just saw right through board holes right there. I didn't say a word. Without offense, she walked on by. What I didn't know, she did a 180-degree turn and about face and attacked me from the rear. She came up from behind me and put her pink hand that was black before it got burned on my pink shoulder that was white before it got burned. And she took that other little pink hand and plugged it in to about 440 volts of Jesus Christ. And she started praying in what I heard around this front a while ago in a language I did not understand. She started speaking in tongues. You understand what that means? If you've if you're not been acquainted with that, you found out tonight, there's a lot of people around here do that. Y'all are crazy. In the most wonderful way. She started praying in tongues. And I had not heard that since uh, over a year before, before I ever went to that war. I had not heard anybody pray in the spirit. I had heard anybody lift their voice and pray. And all of a sudden, the craziest thing happened. Water came out my eye. And it ran down my cheek. And I looked, and for the first time in 12 months, tear flowed down my face. From my left eye, my right eye, it couldn't function. There was nothing there but the gray eyeball scarred. Did you know that during COVID, right in the middle of it, I went down and they put me in the hospital and they did surgery on my right eye after 52 years at that time, or 51 at that moment. They took the scar tissue off my right eye and they found out I had 20-20 vision in my eyes. I see perfectly. Now, these glasses are not prescription, but the light is, I just don't like bright lights in my eyes and my eyes, they've been burned. So I wear the glasses and they're just enough so that I hope you can still see my eyes. I can see you without looking like blind Bartimaeus up here. 
And uh, with all that said, I started weeping. And I found myself in a valley of Baca. Blessed is the man whose strength is in thee, in whose heart are the ways. Remember I emphasized that word? That translates highways. Are the highways to Zion. The highway to heaven passes through a valley called Baca. And the word Baca, I didn't know what it meant. I heard a banaca. That's what you spray in your mouth so people don't know that you've been smoking. I don't think they make a drug or spray that can stop that smell. And, and I don't judge anybody because Lord knows. I, I, people have asked me over the years, Mr. Reaver, did you ever smoke? I say, yeah, once. They got the fire out. <laughs> I've said, I've seen people, I, I never did. I tried to smoke once and I did fine until I inhaled. I sound like Bill Clinton up on the top of the White House with Willie Nelson smoking pot. Well, I didn't inhale. <laughs> How stupid does he think we are? Oh, Lord. That's like I drank a beer, but I didn't swallow. <laughs> I'm going to tell you something. God had a plan for my life, and there wasn't a devil in or out of hell big enough to pluck me out of the hand of God, and he can't take you out of the hand of God either. You hearing me? Are you hearing me? Baca means weeping. Let me just read you that scripture from the gospel according to Dave. Blessed is the man whose strength is in God. In his heart are highways that go to heaven and they pass through a valley of weeping. But he has a shovel and he never leaves home without it. And he digs wells in that dark desert valley and the rains come and they fill those little pools where he dug and then the winds blow little seeds and they come and they land in that soft damp soil and the soil grasps that little seed and germinates it and it starts to grow and that little seed one day turns into a seedling and that seedling turns into a sapling and the sapling turns into a palm tree that sheds more seeds. And one day you have an oasis in the middle of a desert because somebody took time to walk into a burn ward and laid hands on an ugly white boy that didn't know the difference in up and down at that time. And she didn't care what color I was. She only saw a man broken and decided that I needed to be healed. And she laid hands on me and healed me that day. As the water flowed from my eyes, it, it dampened the soil and the seed grew and the oasis is full of water today. I will never ask God to take my tears away. And even though I'm embarrassed because I'm so easily broken and I, I'm tender and I don't like that, in the presence of other people because I feel like it, people misinterpret it as weakness. It's not. It's not weakness. I'd rather be tender than be some old hard-hearted, good-for-nothing sluggard that doesn't know the difference in 
good and bad and beat my wife and molest my kids and kick my dog. I'm not going to live like that. Just leave old Dave alone. Let him cry his way all the way to heaven because some of my tears are for joy. Don't lose your tears. And this morning I made a statement that's really stuck to me all day. You'll never win a city you haven't wept over. Jesus wept over Jerusalem to win Jerusalem. Have you wept over Wasella? Weep over Wasella to win Wasella. Weep over your family to win your family. And so the blessed man is passing through the valley of weeping, the valley of sorrow. I want to talk a little bit about that valley of sorrow. It's historically a literal valley. It's there. It's known as the Baca Valley today, Baca, B-A-K-A-A. And it is the valley where ending up after the hostages were taken during the Carter administration and delivered from that incarceration under the Reagan administration, they were kept, after they were taken out of Iran, they were kept in the Baca Valley. Terry Waite was among those, one of the most famous of all the hostages, a reporter. And Terry Waite, 707 seven days, something like that, they were kept there in the Valley of Weeping. That's today's Bacal Valley. And it's kept under Lebanese, you know, on Lebanese territory by Syrian secret police who guard it. What's to guard in a Valley of Weeping? I'll get back to that shortly. But the history on it is, David's writing about it. What is this valley called Bacal? I started doing a word trace on it. You know what I found out? It's the Valley of Hinnom that Jesus talked about. The Gehenna, Gehenna, I would nickname it. Gehenna, where he said, the fire is not quenched and the worm dieth not. He referred to Gehenna, Hinnom, Baca as hell, where the worm dieth not, the soul never dies, and the fire is never quenched. He called Hinnom hell. Are you with me? Go back to the valley of Hinnom. It's the first place the children of Israel in following after the evil god Moloch in satanic worship. Some say, well, I'm, I just can't afford to serve God. That tithing stuff, man, give 10%. I can't, I can't pay my own bills. How am I going to give God 10%? I just cost too much to serve God. It costs too much to serve God. When I, there's things I want to do that, that serving God won't let me do. I just can't afford it. The devil wants your firstborn, baby. He's coming after your firstborn. The Valley of Hinnom, the children of Israel, following Satan, he required that they pass their firstborn through the fire. That is, Satan required them to put their firstborn baby on the altar and burn that baby to death in a sacrifice to Satan. And then you heard already in the magnificent prayer of our dear sister, talking about that child that was put on the altar and a ram was found in the bush. Now that's not a pickup made by Dodge on a hill climb. That's a ram too. And you said, that's stupid. No, you'll remember the ram because I made fun of it. You see, the devil thought he was going to get a sacrifice where God would put the firstborn on the altar and burning. God will always provide. No nation in the history of this planet has survived cannibalism or 
children sacrificed, human sacrifice. No societies ever survived cannibalism and human sacrifice. My fear for America is we've sacrificed so many babies in abortion that only God can deliver us from a certain devastation end. If he does not judge the righteous with the wicked, then we have a hope. But I'm going to tell you something, folks. This country's hellbound. Our last hope was in Roe versus Wade reversal in the middle. And if you don't appreciate what I'm saying, thank God you weren't aborted. Still love me? You're a man, Mr. Reaver. You have no right to talk about abortion. No one ever gave birth to a child that didn't involve a man involved in that story, too. And I want every one of us to know God does not judge and continue to judge and send to hell people that have been through abortions. He forgives all sins. And if he can forgive the sin of abortion, he can forgive any sin. And that is human sacrifice. And the craziest thing about it is They said, with every child born is evidence that God has not given up on the human race. I say, with every child aborted, it's evidence we have given up on the human race. Can we stop the insanity? Can we, America, can we stop the insanity of destroying our children from birth? Well, if we don't, and you've already seen evidence out of it in New York, that if you don't want the child even after it's born, they just put it on the shelf and let it die. Did you know that in Alaska? Did you know that? That's, that's what they do now. We've got to stop this insanity. This, my friend, is the valley of weeping that we live in today. What's our mission? Passing through it. We dig a well and give water to a dying, thirsting generation of people wandering like a spirit in a desert place. If you, if you agree with me, can I get just a little support? Let me hear from you. It's hard to say these things. These are not easy things to talk about, but if you read in the book of Leviticus, chapter 5, verse 11, it says, do not put frankincense or do not put perfume on the sacrifice for the sin offering. Don't put, the Bible said, read it for yourself. Do not put the, the savor, sweet smelling savor, do not put the frankincense on the sin offering. Which is to say, you cannot make sin smell good. You cannot talk about sin without it being devastating. And if you think I'm sitting up here some holy magistrate with my little wand of blessing people or cursing people with my censor of a microphone, no, no, God knows I am no better than anybody. In fact, I've said it and I've, it is my personal self-opinion. God knows I'm the least among you. And I say that from a true spirit of brokenness. You don't know me, but I'm the least among you. And if God can help me through the things I've been through, and the darkness I've lived in, we can make this, we can turn this around. We can destroy the work of the enemy that's trying to destroy the work of God. 
And I'm going to tell you a story that led me to the very brink that probably, and I think it's traceable to this truth that I wanted to commit suicide without committing suicide. I wanted the Viet Cong to kill me and not me kill myself. And I'm going to tell you the story that brought me to that moment. And when you understand this, you'll understand why I talked about law enforcement. You'll understand why I talked about being proactive and intervening in the lives of somebody else that's being destroyed. And if we don't, are you held accountable? It's a little village called Tutua. And the reason I'm sharing this with you is because last week in Vietnam, at the graduation ceremony of hundreds of our beautiful graduates, I shared the story for the first time in 53 years in Vietnam. I did not know if I would be arrested. I didn't know what would happen. But there's some things you just got to get off your chest. Do you understand that? Say amen. amen. This is the story I shared to the Vietnamese graduation ceremony. If you want to, if you want to hear the proof of what I say, go to Reap Worldwide Vietnam Graduation and you can see what was recorded last week in Vietnam in my graduation speech. I told the story. It's a village called Tutua. I was on my boat one day during broad daylight and the radar is down in a darker place so you can see the screen without reflecting sunlight. It's easier to see in a darker place called the chief's quarters. And standing behind the helm, you could look down and see the radar down there circling, circling. And I noticed something I had not seen before. There was a little gap, a little space on the radar screen. It was probably about two inches long. That was an opening on the riverbank. The riverbank was higher than the water, and it pinged or it reflected on the radar screen the exact shape of the river. But there was this little gap I'd never seen before, and I knew that river like the back of my hand. If you didn't know the river, the river would kill you. You had to know where you were at all times. And I stopped the boat, and I looked over, and I saw that space. I went over to investigate, and I found out there were portable pieces of vegetation that could be brought in and closed off that gap, and you couldn't see it if you were right in front of it. But somebody had failed to close the gate that day. And as they say, the cow got out. And in the process of someone not closing the gate, it opened the door of opportunity for me to go up in a little canal, man-made, that was so shallow. At low tide, you couldn't get out. If you were up in there, you couldn't get out. High tide, because the river was so close to the ocean, South China Sea, the river would adjust 14 feet of tide. For, you've got places like that in Alaska. You know how, how desperate that is. And... It was high tide, and we were touching bottom a little bit on a few occasions. My boat had no propellers. It was a water jet system. It was water jacuzzi jets. It would suck water up into giant pumps on two big diesel V6 engines that had, they were blowers on them, huge horsepower, fast boats, 50 miles an hour for a boat's fast with machine guns and Navy SEALs all loaded up. We were bumping along going up in this little, and it had what I would call a cul-de-sac. At the end, it was like a big thermometer. You go up into it, they had this bulb up there. I beached the boat. 
And I watched as the people looked at me. No boat had ever been up in that little canal before in the little village of Tutua. And as they were looking at me, I felt the presence of the enemy. Trust your feelings, Luke. I'm your father. I trusted my feelings. I was the gunner's mate for all you Navy guys. I was a GMM, originally gunner's mate missiles. And then I became gunner's mate guns, GMG. And I've put on, you remember the movie about Rambo? He had this crisscross of machine gun belts and he carried an M60. That's exactly what I carried. There was no such movie then. And here's the kicker. My commanding officer was Lieutenant Commander Vince Rambo. <laughs> of course, it meant nothing in those days because there's no Rambo movies. But my, and you can find all this online. He's real. And that's my CO. So I, I take my M60 and I walk off the bow of my boat and I start through this village alone. I wasn't wearing a shirt because it was so hot. I just wore my trousers and my boots. And as I walk through the village, I'm looking because nobody knew we were coming. I felt relatively safe. No, there's no, nobody going to set an ambush if they don't know you're coming. And the children would come up and look at me, and they would reach out and touch me and jump back. And then another kid come on and touch my hand and jump back. They were scared to death, that big gun, but they wanted to touch me and see, am I really real? Am I really real? I saw their fear, and I went back to my boat, and we left. I said as we, walked, as we left, I said, we're going to go back tomorrow. And no, everybody was okay with it. The next day, we went back. I moved the brush myself. We got up in that canal, and the children saw Dave come, this time without the belt of, weapon, of ammunition and with no weapon. I wasn't even carrying a pocket knife. I didn't even have a nail clipper on me. And I'm walking up into this village. Now, I'm not as crazy as that may sound. I did not use those children as human shields, but I also knew Papasan, who may have been Viet Cong, was not going to shoot me at risk of killing his own kids. Does that make sense? I walked through that village, and those children were gathering around me. This time, they'd touch a little bit longer, and I grabbed one of them by his wrist, and you would have thought I grabbed a squealing little pig, and that little guy was screaming bloody murder. He thought I was going to just eat him. <laughs> and when he saw I wasn't hurting him, and I just gathered all these flame parts, and I held him against my chest, he relaxed turn around and he smiled at everybody because he was getting a free ride. And they started chanting, Mop, Dad, Mop, Dad. They gave me a nickname. And wherever I went, those children followed the Pied Piper of Tutua. The third day, I said, we're going back. And my team said, no, Dave, we don't want to go back. We're setting a pattern. They're going to set an ambush. And anybody that's ever served in combat knows exactly what I just said. You do not become predictable. Predictability, if they think they know Americans are lazy. We like interstates better than driving through all the stoplights of a little town. We take the path of least resistance. In Vietnam, they would put bouncing beddies, they call them, little mines, and when you step on them and you take the next step, that thing jumps up in the air and explodes, kills everybody underneath it. 
landmines were always put where they knew we would take the path of least resistance. That's the problem of looking for an easy walk with Christ. Christianity light tastes great, less filling. Christianity light tastes great, less filling. I'm not looking for an easy path because I know the danger of an easy path. You're predictable. The devil knows what you're going to do next. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything, but he's smart enough to know if you do the same thing over and over, he can set the ambush. He's going to get you. So we talked this morning about quit walking in circles and falling in the same hole. And so as I walk through that village, those children start chanting that name again. Mop debt, mop debt, mop debt. Third time back. It was dangerous. We got by with it. When I entered in the third time, there was a little boy about this tall, naked as a jigger, didn't have a stitch of clothes on, four years old. <clears throat> He's running down the riverbank, weaving in and out of the casket factory where they carved out caskets, in and out of the ice factory where they would bring ice completely surrounded with rice hull that would use like insulation. And this little boy's running through their screen, mop debt, mop debt. Well, all the children gathered, and when we beached the boat, I was overrun by children. I held my arms out there, hanging on my arms. They're dragging me as I walk there, hanging on my legs. One of them crawling up my back, trying to get on top of my head when I hit the deck and it fell. They're all over me. And then my pockets were filled. My, they're called cargo pants. That's what you call them. Filled with popcorn because my wife would send me gifts wrapped in, in, in or surrounded by popcorn. They didn't have those little, little what they call styrofoam peanut things. Remember those? You see, they didn't have those back then. Popcorn without salt and butter was a great, but then you could eat the wrapping, packing. Well, I stuffed my pockets full of popcorn, and those little kids would find that popcorn. My pockets were empty in a flash. They loved popcorn. Mop debt, mop debt, mop debt. Then I found out what it meant. Fat butt. <laughs> and I'm, using the, I'm using the word I can get by with in church. That's what it meant, fat butt. I was dying laughing when I found out because I was big and they were little and they thought that I just was big in all the wrong places. <laughs> I lost my heart to the children of Vietnam. They stole my heart. And I said the fourth day we're going back I shouldn't have gone back. The fourth day, I never got into the village. I never got up in the canal. I saw smoke in the tree line at night. It was black smoke boiling up. It was huge. The village of Tutu was on fire. The communists had come in. And I said, they're going to pay because they killed the elementary school teacher and the little kids that were in her class. Their little bodies were strewn at the entrance to, to say to me, look what you did, Dave, look what you did. They know my name, but mop dead. And I felt the sense of guilt come over me. Did I expose these children to this death because I love them? Is it love that got them killed? They loved me, I loved them, we were, we were bound together in the middle of a hellish war with something called love and nobody had seen that. I hadn't seen it and those children had not seen it. 
we dropped anchor and I picked up the microphone and I pushed the button and pushing that button on the microphone was the same as pulling the trigger that day. I called in a heavy team of F4 Phantoms to drop 1,000 pound and 500 pound ordnance on that village because all the people that got away were alive and those that didn't were dead. The only people left were the Viet Cong. And they had burrowed into the bunkers that every little hooch house made of straw. Every one of those little houses had a bunker down in it and the Viet Cong had gotten in those bunkers and were lodged in there. And I said, they're not getting by with this. And when I pushed that button, I pushed damnation on that little village. And they dropped their bombs. And one of them was called a, a long round. If they drop it one second late, it overshoots. Well, when they came in, they were coming toward us. And one of those bombs dropped late. And it landed between the village and my boat. And when it exploded, it knocked me to the deck. And blood came out my nose, my eyes, my ears, and I'm coughing up blood. The damage, and it didn't even, the actual bomb, no shrapnel touched me, no fire touched me, just concussion. And then I realized the hell that had fallen on that village. And then the army came in with their tanks, and they would pull up on top of those bunkers and crush them and bury the communists alive. I told this story in Vietnam a week ago for the first time. You see what I'm talking about? It's a place called sorrow, a place called tears, a place of weeping. And it's not just a place physically. It's a place emotionally. And I have visited that village so many times emotionally. Now I'm going to tell you the rest of the story. My wife and I, she knew how it broke me. She knew the story. Because when I could finally speak in that hospital, I told her the story of Tutua. I told how one of those bombs hit the poultry factory and it killed all their ducks. And I personally bought and paid for 5,000 little furry yellow balls of little ducks. And I got one of the Navy's landing craft that the front end lays down. And we put plywood and covered it so that the little, you know, they had vents so that you could see through it. With that plywood on there, when it laid down, it was a ramp. And when it laid down, all those little ducks invaded the village of Tutu. I replaced all the ducks that were killed in that, in that event that day. Fifty years later, my wife and I built a church on the property where my blood, my ashes are in that soil. There's a church today in Tutua at the very place of my injury. And guess what? I bought 5,000 ducks to introduce that church to that community. And there were people, the old, GI, the old folks that remembered the GIs that day when the ducks were brought in that first time. They remembered the day Dave Reaver brought ducks. You see, when you're a well digger, people never forget when you give them a drink of water in a desert place. I hope I'm making sense to you. Well diggers are broken people, they are. They don't wear tuxedos to dig wells. I remember when my wife and I bought the property that I live on today. It was unimproved. No water, no electricity, no sewer, no telephone lines, 
Nothing. It was just unimproved property. You know what that means. So I went up and there was a telephone at a little gas station. And I called a place called All Red Well Digging Service because I didn't know who to call. I needed a well. And I dialed the phone and this is how it went. Ring, ring, ring. What? Excuse me? What? Is this all red welding, welding and service? Yes. Uh, is Mr. Allred there? Yes. Am I by any chance talking to Mr. Allred? Yes. I said, I need a well dug. When? I said, now? Where? 9430 10 Mile Ridge Road. Okay. Click. <laughs> I'm telling you the truth. My wife said to me, baby, did you order a well? I said, I think so. <laughs> How do you not know if you did or not? I didn't know. She said, well, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to get on the four-wheeler. I'm going to go up to the end of my unimproved road on our unimproved property and sit by the paved road and see if somebody shows up named Allred. Four hours later, I'm sitting up there, and I see a truck coming out, a big A-frame on the back, an old 50-something model white Ford truck, and all-red paint on the side of the door was so faded it was barely legible in a pinkish color. And he bounced onto my property, and buckets fell off, and he rolled to a stop because he didn't have any brakes. And I thought, Jed Clampett has just arrived on my property. He's going to dig me a well. I walked I said, are you Mr. Already? He said, yes. I said, sir, would you dig me a well? Where do you want the well dug? I grabbed my heart and I stepped back and said, Elizabeth, it's the big one, baby. He said, what's wrong with you? I said, what's wrong with you? That's the first time I've heard a sentence come out of your mouth. He said, where do you want the well? I said, I don't know. Get your stick thing out. Walk around and see if the ground sucks that stick out of your hand. Dig me a well. I was so upset with this guy. I thought, this isn't going to work. Where are you going to build the house? I said, over here. He said, why don't you put the well near the house? Well, I don't know. I didn't think of that. And he's thinking, that's because you're stupid. <laughs> I'm the well digger. And he dug me a well. This is how it goes. Now, this is worth taking. Stay with me. Stay with me. He lights off what's called the PTO, the power takeoff, and it starts spinning. And he hooks something up, and it starts spinning this thing up the top. And he hooks a pipe on it, and it starts spinning. And he has a little bit, they call it, on the end of it. It starts spinning, and he lowered it into our hard old ground in Texas that's so dry, our trees fight over dogs. You got to think about that. Our catfish have ticks. That's called dry. And it would pop in little, little pieces of this, what we, we call caliche, would burst a little white bus of, I think he's never, he's not going to get six inches with that piece of junk drilling in that hard ground on my property. The next thing I know, he's down about two feet. And boy, look at he's, he's down an eight-foot-long pipe, and he puts on another one. And he keeps adding these pipes that he's sliding out from under his truck. 125 feet down, he hit the third level of the Trinity River and brought up a glass of water, actually a tin cup, that was so cold from that depth 
that that July humid day made that cup sweat, dripping water. I was like Pavlov's dog. I started salivating. Give me a drink of that water. I drank. It's the sweetest water. 53 years later, I'm still drinking from the well on my property. So here's what I saw when he pulled up on my property that day. Jed Clampett and his clothes were nasty from the last well he dug. He smelled like the mud he dug up. He was a mess. His hair was a mess. He, everything he did was a mess. But when he handed me that water, I looked at him and I said, I don't know who your tailor is, but that's a fine-looking set of dickies you're wearing there, mister. And I don't know who cut your hair, but my, my, what a fine, coiffured hair. If you don't get it, let me explain it to you, Lucy. The world's not looking for a good-looking well digger. They don't care what you smell like. They don't care what you look like. When they're dying of thirst, you're the best-looking, best-smelling thing in town when you hand them a glass of cold water. In the name of Jesus, give it up for the well digger, the well himself, the water of life. So that day when that black lady walked in with pink hands, it didn't dawn on me that she's, one, a woman on a men's ward, two, Second-degree burn, we're all dying of third-degree burns. She didn't qualify to be on that ward. Three, why did she show up at that time in my ward when I'm sitting up for my first time? I wasn't connecting the dots yet. But when she came up from behind me, laid hands on me, she dug a well in my valley of sorrow. And that day, they have yet to finish doing to my body after 53 years and 62 surgeries, they have yet to do what she did in a five-minute prayer digging in the well in my life. Oh, God, I want to be a well digger. I want to be a well digger. I want people to understand the value of well digging in the lives of people that are broken and hurting. I'm pretty good. My alarm went off at the right time. I shouldn't worry about the clock. You guys, you guys blew me away. I don't say blow me away often. That's really not. <laughs> That's like I worry about going to heaven and Jesus says, well done, thou good and faithful. No, I want to be medium rare. I don't want to be a well done, thou good and faithful servant. <laughs> Oh, that day she dug a well in the Valley of Weeping. And just for a last little footnote, I was working with the ISG, the Iraqi Survey Group, which is the CIA in, in uh, Iraq uh, several years. Actually, it's near the end of the war. And they were, their job was to look for WMD, weapons of mass destruction. That was their job. And I went to the Perfume Palace, it was called. It looked like from there, it looked like a mosque because Saddam Hussein had built this dome that was to symbolize the top of a perfume bottle. It's where he kept all these concubines. Are you listening to me? This was a house full of women that he kept for his sexual pleasure. And there were like huge, beautiful swimming pools, three of them if I recall, in this beautiful palace. And up in the top deck was a, was a chandelier that would fill half of this, this room. It was gargantuan and it survived the war because our pilots would not bomb what they thought was a mosque 
trying to be polite to a God that even our own pilots did not worship, but trying to show that we're willing to do what we can to win your heart and mind. Are you following me? Make sense so far? I'm speaking to this group of men and women. There is a, there's an octagonal unit that has eight screens bigger than, about the size of this one, not that one back there, but this one. They may be the same size, this one's closer, but they were about that big, eight of them. And each one was a pie shape that had about 20 or so investigators sitting in front of each screen. One screen was known as the U-2 from the U-2 aircraft that flew at 70,000 feet, took pictures on Earth. Uh, the helmet cam, the tank, the Army tank cam, all these different cameras that were feeding information from all over Iraq, live, from the satellite even, into the ISG, the CIA, Investigation for Weapons of Mass Destruction. And I'm the speaker that day, so they shut everything down, and I got all of these people at one time to share my message of resiliency found in faith. Boy, do I love my job. I get to do what even chaplains don't get to do. They can't fire me from the military. I'm a contractor. What do you think of that? What do you think of that? So actually, they want me to share my faith. That's what they bring me in to do in the spiritual side of the Comprehensive Soldier Fitness Program. All that said, I have this strange impression from the Lord that day to take Psalm 84, verse 5, 6, and 7. And I shared with them some of the things I'm sharing with you. And then the footnote. I said, so you're looking for weapons of mass destruction. So where do you think that 747 went that left the last day of Saddam's reign? Where do you think those trucks went when the United Nations were looking for those weapons? They went straight to Syria, to Lebanon, under the Syrian guards and those weapons of mass destruction, chemical warfare, were stored in the Valley of Sorrow, the Bekaa Valley. And when I said it, I watched them sit back and their jaws dropped. This isn't politics, baby. You're hearing it from the man that said it, saw it, and participated in that incredible day. I saw them look at each other saying, who told him? You got telephone, you got telegraph, you got tele-whatever, vision, everything else. But when you got tele-spirit, you got the inside track, baby. Where do you think Syria got the chemical weapons to use with their own people? And where do you think Russia got those same chemicals? Where do you think they came from that, are, that were used in Ukraine? They came from the Bekaa Valley. And there were no weapons of mass destruction to be found. The politics of today makes me want to throw up. Let's just settle for truth. Just tell me the truth, media, if you're capable of doing that. They don't even know it. So here's what I'm saying to you today. We live in a valley. Wait a minute. We're passing through a valley of sorrow. I am not a citizen of this land. My citizenship is in a place called heaven. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, I've traveled all of my life. I've never known what it's like to have a real, truly a foundation. I'm going to a place that does not have wheels or wings underneath it. It's sitting on a foundation whose builder and maker is God. 
that place is calling us today. We're passing through a valley of sorrow. Get a shovel and don't leave home without it. That's my message and I'm sticking to it. Got time for one more little well digging story? This is what I try to avoid, but today I had the incredible privilege of sitting with a wonderful lady. Miss Linda, thank you, sweetheart, for the time together to visit. We are, we are co-partners with some of you who've lost your spouse in the last year, two years. You know what it's like. Remember the story this morning. Now you get it, don't you? And if you didn't hear that this morning, well, then you didn't get it, did you? <laughs> the old saying, it takes one to know one. When you've been hurt in the same way as somebody else, you can say, I know how you feel, and you're qualified because you have a scar to prove it. Scars are, you can have an emotional scar as real as a physical scar. And my body is scarred. It's mutilated. I could show you, but then I have to kill you, and I don't think you want to die. Scars have a story to tell. And this is one of the most amazing stories. And it's, it's relatively short, but I shared it with Miss Linda. I wanted to share it with you tonight. Whenever I was on that ward, you remember the 13 of us, the baker's dozen, we're all going to die. And at night, we died between midnight and 4 a.m. We, because I'm the only survivor. Twelve passed away while I was there. I'm the only one to come off that ward live. Not because I'm good. Not because God loved me more than them. Probably because they were ready. And God had a mess to deal with with me to get me ready. And he wasn't going to take me till I'm ready. And I've made it this many years. Did you know the tomb of my dear friend Ruth Graham, Billy Graham's precious wife? Her, cat, uh, her headstone says, Construction completed <laughs> mine will say no I'm not going to tell you what it's going to say <laughs> we'll leave that alone at 4 a.m. between midnight and 4 a.m. everyone died and they brought in a Quonset hut I guess it was I may have been sharing that with uh, Pastor Jim I don't remember who I shared it with but today I shared it and they had this Quonset hut and the, the families of those that were dying on the, what we call death row, the 13 of us, the families, whether it be a wife or a mom and dad or some caregiver, were housed in this old Quonset hut. It had a wooden floor. I think there were six apartments on each side and a common bathroom for everybody. I mean, it was horrible conditions. And they moved that thing in on big trucks and put it right beside Brook Army Medical Center medical center burn ward so that when they died or in the process of dying and they knew they weren't going to last much longer they'd run over and they would get the oven to bring them over I'm having a hard time speaking I'm emotionally distraught tonight they would bring them over and be with them when they died or it was too late they went over and said your, your loved one passed my wife's little room was the first one on the left when you walk in the door was outside was a screen door that's how modern it was. A screen door with a spring. And when you open the door, that spring would rub against the, and it made a little 
channel where that spring had rubbed through the edge of that screen door. And once that was open, and it would pop and twang as that door would open, then you had the big door, and it had a big knob that was attached to nothing. It was so worn out, it just rattled, and it would slide in. So when you push, it would bang, and then the door would open. Every night someone died, my wife was the first to hear the screen door open, then the big door open, and then quite inadvertently, the doctor on call that night, the commanding officer and a chaplain would walk down that wooden floor inadvertently in step, marching left, right, left. It was not intentional, but it tripled the sound of the thud of the feet walking on that wooden floor. And then you'd hear and a door would open. You could hear quiet mumbled voices. Then it was screaming, crying, denial, no, no. What was my little teenage wife doing during those moments? You know what she was doing? She would get out of her little bed, put her hands on that door, and by her own words, I quote exactly, verbatim, death angel, don't you stop at this door tonight. You thought I was here because I'm tough. Are you kidding me? I'm the wuss that didn't know how to live without help. I'm the guy that didn't know how to find my way. With the lights on, I had a little girl with her hands on the door that rebuked all hell night after night 12 times. And that death angel never stopped at her door. She was my well digger. Do you have somebody that dug a well in your life? Can you remember their name tonight? I remember almost all my well diggers. I got well diggers, I don't know. I'm sure that as I was laying up there on the edge of death night after night, somebody in Africa or India or Switzerland or Russia, who knows where, some believer would roll out of bed praying for somebody they didn't even know, obeying the Spirit of God in groans and utterances that could not be made in words crying out for some guy in a hospital in San Antonio, Texas, or burning on the bank of the Vamcote River on the border with Cambodia, where the village of Tutua became my Flanders field. It was there that I begged God to let somebody kill me because I didn't want to take my own life. And because of that day and those children, I put myself into every dangerous situation I could find so I would not be held accountable for suicide. And whether or not I'm the product of that miscalculation of right and wrong, I don't know. I may never know in this life. There's so many extenuating circumstances that would fascinate you to hear the alternatives to what brought me to that day that put me on my knees on the bank of a river. When I looked down, I could see my own heart beating. And I was pumping blood out of an open artery that severed with the shrapnel that blew my hand in half. I would watch my heart beating blood shoot out in little sprays. I'm here because somebody believed in me enough to pray for me, to stand by me. My little sweet wife, all those 54 years, was called a scab picker. All the surgeries that I ever went through, she would always finish what the doctors never did finish. She would finish the detail work.
of making sure I never got an infection from all those surgeries. I'm alive today because she was not only my wife, she was my lifesaver, my well digger. Dig a well for somebody. Husband, dig a well for your wife. I've told many a man since Brenda passed, two lessons I learned. One, you kiss her good night every night. Kiss her beautiful face. Touch that skin that's so soft on her beautiful face. Tell her how much you love her. And then die first and make her pay all the bills. Because <laughs> boy, it is a pain in the wallet. Oh my goodness, it's a hassle. You guys still love me. I love you. <laughs> Woo. There's not, there's not a church in this, on this planet I have more fun than I do when I come here. Y'all just let me be me and you don't put me in a box of the entertainer. I just come here and put my heart on the table and we watch it beat together. I do love you and I want to pray for you tonight. And if you're in that valley, I can't preach without reaching for the broken. I'm sorry. I don't know how to be a encourager and leave everybody on this really high note. I think it was Spurgeon said you can dangle them over the pit of hell when you're preaching, but always leave them in heaven when you're through. Well, this is where I want to leave you in heaven. If you're broken and you're hurting and you're lonely, this morning's invitation was one of the strangest I've ever given. And when I saw the response, I realized it wasn't me calling. It was God calling. And the response told me we were right on you and me in the right place at the right time. Well, that same spirit is working in the same room tonight. And if you're in that place of just dying of thirst, this is the time and place for God to do the miracle in your life. I give you a drink of water in the name of Jesus. Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven because I know God, your will is done in heaven. And if we can have your will done on earth like it's done in heaven, we cannot lose this battle. We cannot lose this war. We are by every measure winners, victorious over death, hell, and the grave with you. And God, we're seated today in the throne with your son Jesus at your throne. We are overcomers by the blood of the lamb, the word of our testimony, and we love not our lives unto death. So while we may live in the valley of weeping, we may live in a land of sorrow, we are passing through it, not truly living in it. We're passing through it. God, give us a shovel to dig. Give us patience and strength to succeed in our digging and give us water. When we hit that water, let us pass that to those that are dying of thirst. And Lord, some of them are in this room right now. Now, I don't do this when I'm out speaking in the world. But in a church, I think people are far more sensitive to peer pressure. So I'm going to succumb to the peer pressure fear. If you would keep your eyes closed and your heads bowed, I'm going to ask for a physical response of a raised hand. When I do this in the world, I don't do that. I just say, you're a sinner. You're going to hell. You want to get right with God? Get up on your feet and come forward. And they come by the thousands. And I love that. The world is not so defensive about their image as the church. I'm going to accommodate that tonight. 
if you are in that dry place. You've not lost your faith. You know who you have believed and you are persuaded that he's able to keep that which you've committed unto him against that day. But until that day, it's been a long, hard, desperate walk and you're tired in a dry, thirsty land and you need a drink of water. You're desperate for a blessing from God to satisfy your thirsty soul. Can I put it any better than that? If that's you, raise your hand and take it back down. Look at there. Look at there. Oh my goodness. Look at that. All right. Everybody stand with me if you would. I keep forgetting that offering thing. Are you doing that tonight? Doing an offering tonight? Well, at least my heart's in the right place. It's not in my wallet. It's in my, right now it's in my throat. My heart's in my throat. I want to pray for us first before we do the offering. Is that okay? We're going to worry about the money last. We'll take care of business with the kingdom right now. I'm going to pray a prayer. And those of you that raised your hands at the end of this prayer, if you're willing to, I want you to come forward and line up across the front. And we're going to believe God. We're going to lay hands on you because you need deliverance. Amen? Are you with me, folks? Father in heaven, your will be done right now, right here at this moment for those that are dying for a drink of water. Jesus, you said, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, let him come. Let he that hath no money, let him buy and drink from the water of life freely. Lord Jesus, what you're saying is we can't earn this. There's no perfume we can put on sin to make it smell better. There's nothing we can do but act by faith and believe that you are our hope for a drink of water. I dug a well tonight. We have been well diggers. We sing unto that well, spring up a well, spring up and let water come out of that. Let it be an artesian well where the water just springs out of the ground. Lord, I pray tonight for those that are thirsting. Your scripture, your word says, blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness for they shall be filled. Now, in the name of Jesus, fill those that are thirsty. If you raised your hand or if you didn't and you wished you had, I want you to come stand with me right now. Line up across the front. God's going to give you that drink of water you're thirsty for. Come on down all over this auditorium. Make your way to the front. I love you, buddy. I'm so proud of you. Bro, you look good tonight. You're beaming in the presence of God. Ma'am, are you all together? Married? I have to ask nowadays because I never know. I'm glad you're married and you're both standing here. Double blessing to you both. Double blessing to you. Elisha said he wanted a double portion of Elijah's spirit of the spirit that was on Elijah. I pray a double portion on y'all today. Look at you. Look at you. How old are you, baby? Ten. I would have said 15 for sure. You're just beautiful. I'm sorry? Oh, it's all right. Listen to me. She's doing the right thing right now. At that age, there's not a better time. Just give it all to Jesus. You're going to do that tonight, aren't you, darling? Your mama, right? You're standing here too. Take and drink of this water, and you'll never thirst again. my goodness, I, the, the 
older a woman gets, the less you ask how old she is. So we don't ask. If you're older than 10, I'm not going to ask. Here's what I am going to say. It's never too young to say yes to Jesus. Amen. Man, be a man. Do the man thing. And the man thing is to stand with a backbone for what you know is right. Take the leadership. The Bible puts you as priest in the house. That's not, that's not chauvinistic. That's not maleism, sexism. If you don't like it, deal with God. He's the one who put it that way. But don't ever forget, for the man who's told to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. As men, it's our responsibility to love and to be tenderhearted. So tonight, if you're brought to tears, join the blubbering preacher trying to talk to you. Don't be afraid of your own tears, all right? Do the man thing. God created us as emotional beings. It's okay to cry. A broken, contrite spirit is a sweet-smelling savor in the nostrils of a living God. I was on ABC or Good Morning America, and uh, this, this is 30 years ago. And uh, the woman looked at me, and, and you know the you know the the commercials coming when you hear the music start playing softly. They're leading you into a commercial. It's a heartbreaking. You've got to stop at exactly the right time. You can't go over. They just cut you off. So the music tells you, wind up your sentence and then let the host take it off and finish the conversation because they're used to that, right? Now follow me in this because this is important to every one of you that have come forward. This is the change that's going to happen in your life. That woman, very beautiful woman, if I called her name, you'd know it, but she may not appreciate me putting her into a spiritual setting. She looked at me, and the music's winding. She said, thank you for being on the show with me today. She thought it went to a hard break. And these are the exact words she turned. She said, I don't use the name of God in vain. And to me, this is nearing that, but I, don't, I never use the name of God in vain. She said, God... You smell good. The cameras were still rolling. The microphones were still open. And it went across America. And then it went to blank. You know, the commercials started playing. I looked at her and I said, excuse me? She said, you smell good. I thought, well, I guess it's my English leather. You ever heard of that English leather? It was a cologne. And then the Lord said, no, it's Jewish leather. You see, there's a world out there that's not accustomed to a fragrance of Jesus being in the life of people. When you drink of the water of life, you exude out of your spiritual pores. You bring forth the essence of the oil of anointing in your life and you smell good. Don't be surprised if someone tomorrow says something about you that is a reflection of the Christ that you're about to drink into your life from the well. I want you to follow me in a prayer. As you repeat this prayer, adopt it and adapt it. Accept it and utilize it. Adopt it and adapt it into your life. I don't know how the prayer is going to go, but I'm led by the Spirit of God and God's going to speak to every one of us through it. Are you ready? You have to close your eyes and bow your heads. We'll even hold the music for this incredible moment between you and heaven. Lord Jesus, I believe in you.
I believe in a place called heaven. And between earth and heaven is the walk of life. My very destiny is being applied in this prayer. My pathway from here, where I am, to there where you are. And there is not a place in heaven to come. It's the throne in my heart. There you are. There I am. We are seated on that throne together. Jesus, give me your precious spirit. The essence of your oil poured forth. Dump the whole bottle on my head. Let it pour down over my body. Let it soak to the soles of my feet. I want to smell like you, Jesus. I want to look like you. I want to behave like you. I want people to look at me and see you and glorify you and the Father which is in heaven. So tonight, Lord Jesus, my dry, thirsty spirit drinks unlimited swallows of water, the water of life. I will never thirst again, but I will never stop drinking of the water of life. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen. Give the Lord a clap offering in his Well, I hope you were encouraged by God's word. Thank you again for listening to Kings Alaska podcast. God bless you. For more great content, go to kcalaska.com and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace.